Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, and welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. I'm Jason Grigla, and I'm going to be speaking with you tonight about a tough subject, one that's not exciting, glamorous, or fun, and yet really important. Otherwise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even be wasting time or energy on it. And yet, I end up spending a lot of time, energy, focus, emotion, and resources on the topic of health for those who are neurodiverse. And most of the research and evidence that we have for health and neurodiversity comes from studies that are done with autism specifically. And I, I don't want to assume that there's a huge link because I don't have any actual data on it. But I do think there's a very practical link that I think most of you will agree with as we as we talk about the issues. I don't know how many of you know what the mortality or lifespan average is for someone who's diagnosed with autism. It's as low as 36 from one study and maybe as high as I think it was... Let me take a look again. One says 39, one says 54. So maybe 36 is the most pessimistic view of the average lifespan of someone who is diagnosed with autism. Um, But even if it's the best possible outcome, the average is 54. Imagine if you found out that because you are diagnosed with autism, that your average lifespan will be anywhere between 36 and 54. That's not real encouraging. And it's really scary for those who are autistic and those who love people who are autistic. Um, And so tonight we're going to talk about what that's about. And it has everything to do with, with, um, well, actually, not just health. There's a lot of factors that we're going to talk about. Uh, there was there was an article published in CNN on March 21st, 2017, on my birthday about four years ago. And that's the study that talked about that a person's average lifespan, if you're autistic, is 36 years old. Um, and so some of the correlations that they have found, and they're correlations, not proof of causation, but oftentimes correlation means, yeah, we, we get it and it makes sense. And let me give you some of those, some of those factors. Um, but the reality is that someone who is diagnosed with autism is, is less likely to live longer. And when you think of the, the factors here, think of anyone who has some type of cognitive disability, um, or quirky issue that might fit for some of these correlations. The first one is that injury mortality is much higher, meaning deaths from accidents. 
kids wandering away and drowning, kids walking into the street and getting hit, um, having epilepsy, and they choke or stop breathing or or fall and hit their head. That's one factor. Another factor is this really sad statistic that shows that 550 people with disabilities have been murdered um, by their parents, relatives, or caregivers in the last five years. That is really alarming. And most of them cite the same things, being overwhelmed, can't handle it, a drain on their finances, it's too hard, I snapped, it's too much of a burden. And oftentimes the situation showed that the punishment for those crimes often was lighter in their sentencing because of the undue burden that someone with a disability puts on parents. So I think I think that's kind of twisted as well if you're just thinking of the rights of someone who's disabled, um, whether they were hard or not, probably shouldn't factor into um, whether whether someone who murders them should be um, given a lighter sentence. Um, also, they um, you know there there's been situations where those with severe cognitive disabilities or autism have been shot by police because they didn't respond right or well. They freaked out. They didn't respond to verbal commands. So that's another factor. Another factor is just the stress of living with autism can cause a lot of problems, not just physical health, but suicide. Those with autism are, according to one study, nine times more likely to die from from suicide than non-autistic peers. And, And that's hard. And how about just the physical stressors of being neurodiverse, anxiety from being bullied, um, having to learn how to mimic others, survive in a world that wasn't created for them or even by them in most situations, Um, having to always pretend and mask so that you don't come across as too excited, too annoying, too overbearing, too much in general is really hard and exhausting just trying to fit in. We've talked about comparison fatigue and how that in and of itself, when someone who's neurodiverse watches their peers and compares themselves to their peers and where they quote unquote should be at any given time developmentally can be really hard and exhausting. Um, Simply having poor sleeping patterns because of anxiety or maybe even autism itself. We're not sure what the connection is, but Poor sleeping patterns is is absolutely a factor in um, autism, and also is is um, one of the correlations for early death. Now, there's a ton of studies that show that people with health and hygiene issues have um, a higher risk of dying younger. Let me let me pull up one of those really quick. So. One study showed that the predictors of early death among autistic people were a range of health conditions. And so this study showed that um, the findings were that there was correlation between those who died early and those who 
at the same time who, who died earlier than were expected. They also had poor coping skills, poor hygiene, low life, um, lower level life skills and life functioning, um, lower independence, and poor social relationship ability. Um, so some of the examples that they give is um, poor oral hygiene, brushing, flossing the teeth, eating factors were huge. Um, the the likelihood of being diabetic and autistic is much greater than the than the normal population, and problems with diabetes obviously can lead to and often lead to um, early mortality. Um, lack of connection has been shown to cause early death, uh, lack of attachment, and um, for those who are neurodiverse, that's especially hard. I'm not sure if using deodorant has ever been linked <laughs> to um, major health problems, but it definitely has been shown to cause loneliness and isolation. So, and then the last one would just be a, a very sedentary lifestyle um, for what we would consider laziness um, is definitely a risk of health problems and early death. So, even though we can't prove direct correlation between autism and early death, we know that it's there. And the factors seem to be all of the things that I talked about. And I think that's just common sense, right? Yes, we want evidence and research to show things that we already know to be true just from common sense. Um, for example, lack of oral hygiene has been linked to early death and is also linked to um, poverty, which means often also poor diet and poor living conditions, um, poor clothes, poor shelter. Um, basic life necessities are are not as good. Poor oral hygiene has been linked to low cognitive abilities. You know, if you're just not very good at brushing your teeth for whatever reason, you're going to have um, poor oral hygiene, and they've shown that the bacteria and the germs in the mouth grow and, and become a problem and, and lead to people being more sick and earlier death as well. So let's talk about that for a minute. How many of us have spent tons of hours, time, emotions, and energy fighting somebody who has poor hygiene, poor eating, poor lifestyle as far as health and activity goes and we do it because we love them but we end up being the bad guy having a lot of stress for us and for them they might end up hating us and at least at, at a you know at a minimum we end up having fights and stress and disagreements and it hurts our relationships um, one example is a student or a young man or a young woman who's a young adult, where the the caregiver, the parents most likely have no ability to control their adult child's teeth brushing or their eating habits, um, at least in most ways. Now, there's always ways to influence, and we'll talk about that towards the end, but how many of us have spent just hours and hours trying to help them smell good and, and look good and dress well so that they can fit into 
what we consider a healthy culture. Anyway, a young adult who wants to eat what they want to eat, do what they want to do, brush or not brush, use deodorant or not, use soap or not, shower or not. And even when we convince them to do any of those things that we think are for their own benefit, how many of them cut corners, lie about it, do a half job, um, or or do it begrudgingly, and then as soon as you stop asking them, they, they stop doing it. And I got to tell you, I, I wasn't very different than those things up until I was like age 12 for washing my body and then age 14 for brushing my teeth. I hated brushing my teeth. Um, I remember when I was a little boy running around all summer and finally Saturday night comes along and my mom says, you have got to get in the bath. And I'm mad. The bath means that the fun is over. It means I have to get clean. It means I have to go to church the next day. Taking a bath became a really negative thing. And I finally turned to my mom and I said angrily with disgust and frustration, mom, you just don't know how good it feels to be dirty. And I hated bath time. Soap was my enemy. And until I was about 12, I didn't want to ever shower or take a bath. Um, maybe swimming should have been enough. And I kind of figured it was. And then I kind of realized I probably want to shower so that my hair looks nice. But man, I didn't like to brush my teeth. And it took me turning 14 when I finally started to talk to girls and go to school dances or church dances that I wanted my breath to smell good. And for a long time, I tried to just chew gum. I mean, chewing gum was enough, right? Um, and if that wasn't quite enough, I would get toothpaste and rub it around in my mouth, anything to avoid the brushing of the teeth until I realized my teeth were yellow and they looked funny. And up until then, I had gone to the dentist with mouthfuls of cavities every year and that never deterred me from avoiding teeth brushing. It didn't matter how many cavities I got. I hated going and getting cavities drilled and filled, but it didn't last long. I would brush my teeth for a few days, and then I was right back to not brushing my teeth. And so, you know, as, as immature as that sounds, I think most boys felt that way about some form of hygiene. Like, why would I change my clothes? If I like my shirt, why can't I keep wearing it? And it just doesn't dawn on us. Um, and, and girls are a little different. I, I think girls from a very young age are, generally speaking, more likely to be aware of their hygiene and their health. Now, I, I have to say there's a lot of um, neurodiverse people who are highly hygienic. And let me point out why they're highly hygienic. Most of the time, they don't like the feel of furry teeth. They don't like the feel of a greasy face or a sweaty back. They don't like the idea of germs on their body. So they, they use soap and shower often. And they don't like the fact that they might have food on them because it looks out of place and unneat. And so they might change their shirt often if they get food spilled on it instead of just wear it the rest of the day and, and change the next day. Those reasons and motives for having good health hygiene and appearance are still very autistic. They're not based in anything social, cultural, 
um, or to do with empathy and compassion for the ones that have to be around them. Now, maybe if they're rigid hyper rule followers, they they love the idea of rules and patterns. Uh, but even that's not about the nuances of health and hygiene. That's more about being a good rule follower. So we do have students at our school that are really hygienic because they can't handle the smells. They're really sensitive to smells and touch and taste and feeling, and they just want and need to be clean all the time. It comes across as a little bit OCD. And so there's that group. And we always think of them as higher functioning, but ironically, their, their motives aren't, aren't very developed. They're still very much about the person, which is what autism is, is a, a diagnosis about the self in the sense that they focus on the self and what they want and need um, for the most part. And the, the other group is the group that focuses on what they want and need. And so they don't do any health and hygiene because it's hard. Um, think about why we value hygiene. It, is it because we want others to accept us? Is it because we're supposed to? Is it because we don't want our mom and dads to be angry or disappointed in us? Is it because our peers expect it as um, a stage in development? And all of those things are very nuanced. Is it because we don't want to be offensive to others? That requires a high level of awareness and developmental maturity. And I think many of those who are neurodiverse um, get there as, as in wanting to be that person. But the more disabled someone might be or the more severely neurodiverse someone is, it could mean that they are less likely to ever care or value some of these very nuanced cultural norms that we have. Um, living in Europe for a couple of years, I realized that many Europeans don't really care about body odor and that it's normal and natural. They don't care about shaving um, and, you know, even bad breath or combing your hair all the time wasn't as valued as the hyper um, appearance focused Americans that I had grown up um, with. Um, and, uh, and ironically, a part of me was judging them and looking down on them. And, and now I'm thinking, man, I... I wish I would have just joined the club. It would have been great to not have to worry about this stuff for a, f a few years, but I didn't do that. Um, how about those who won't exercise and are sedentary? They, they just want to sit around. Oftentimes we think of lazy as the term. Um, you know, my son or daughter is just so lazy because they don't like to do anything. And I think I've, I've touched on this before, but the reality is they are exhausted all the time. Trying to be autistic and a square peg in a round world is exhausting. And their emotional units are used up very early. And oftentimes they're just trying to get through the day, but they're often spent by 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and they still have the rest of the day and the evening to go through. And so what happens is that fight or flight kicks in and they revert to safe mode. And they turtle, they, you know, they pull back into their shell um, they escape, they isolate, they avoid, they try to recoup. Not that their recouping skills are very effective, but they they know when they're done for the day or for the week or for the life. You know, sometimes like, I'm just done. I'm just done with life. And doing hard things isn't always because of laziness. It's often because um, they don't understand the, the reasoning behind it. Showering, putting on 
deodorant, using soap well, brushing your teeth, shampooing your hair, and doing all those things well is a lot of work. And without valuing it, they they often don't see the benefit. And so why would they do it? Why would I do it? Because you want me to. I don't want to do it. And so there's a love-hate relationship. Uh, well, mostly hate in the beginning and and confusion. Um, filling your cup and doing self-medication or self-soothe, nurturing yourself is something that we all learn how to do. And those who are neurodiverse have more reasons to need nurturing. They have less people that are willing to nurture and love them. And they also don't allow for good nurturing to occur. Often self-sabotage, even if they are surrounded by good, loving, nurturing people, they don't let it in. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. So instead they eat. They eat what's comfortable. And I can't tell you how many young adults I've known that come to our school and all they will eat is simple sugars and carbs. One student said he was a vegan and what that really meant was he would only eat rolls and rolls and he literally would eat bread sliced if he had to but he preferred Costco rolls and that's what he ate consistently day in and day out and um he was very he was very physically sickly and he looked sickly and food you know food is fuel he didn't have good fuel other students have come and it's a little more common to be picky where they would live on mac and cheese or top ramen if they could maybe corn dogs as if that's any healthier um you know but it's protein jason well hot dogs might be protein but that doesn't make it healthy um, there are healthier types of protein. Um, but they eat what feels good because they are empty so much. And so many of our young adults who have been in crises or are still developmentally behind avoid doing hard things. And everything to do with physical health and hygiene requires effort and investment. And the fight continues at some point, parents lose their ability to influence. The child says, I'm not doing it and you can't make me. And what are the parents going to do? They can try to punish. At some point, the child says, spank me. I don't care. They can try to encourage and teach. But at some point, the child says, it's my life. I don't have the same values as you and you can't make me. And the parent might try to bribe. And that might work for a while, but ultimately, as soon as the bribe is removed or they get sick of the bribe or they get everything they want because their life is full of bribes, bribes also lose their effectiveness. And so nothing works. And that's one of the issues that I struggle with trying to run a school with young adults who are largely unhealthy, overweight, have poor hygiene, and we spend a ton of time and money providing healthy snacks to be available so that when they snack, they're healthy. We provide their lunches and their dinners. The students cook their dinners, but it's it's monitored and managed. Um, but our students will find a way to eat unhealthily even with that. And I'm amazed at how good they are at finding ways to get what they want. They're really creative when they want to be. And if they have their own money, good luck. How do you stop a 25-year-old from 
ordering DoorDash for every meal if they have their own money. And if you take it away, heaven forbid, you've, you really have crossed the line into their agency. Um, some parents can get um, the courts to um, give them an order of, I can't remember the word right now off the top of my head, where they are responsible for the child uh, or for the, the disabled person, the, dis- the disabled adult, um, and they can control their money somewhat. The best way to help someone be healthy is through example, a culture of healthiness, lots of repetition in a positive setting without the fighting. If you can make brushing their teeth a positive thing from the time that they're young, great. But there are many parents who who have done that with their other children and it worked really well. But then with their neurodiverse child, it didn't work at all. You know, they would fight tooth and nail because they didn't like the taste of the, the toothpaste. And so they would get special toothpaste without a strong flavor. And then they didn't like the, the feeling in their mouth of a brush because it made noise in their head. And they, they just fight it. There are some things we cannot control. I have no problem with bribing. I have no problem with influencing. Sometimes we will, we will say, hey, it's time to go, but you're not getting in the car unless your clothes are neat and clean and you don't smell. So you may want to go fix that um, because you're going to miss the the movie and we're leaving in about 30 minutes. And sometimes that works. And sometimes they run back and then come back with wet hair, but they still have wet hair that smells like a dog. And you are 99% sure they didn't change their underwear, which was actually the smelly part of, of their problem. And you have to decide, is it worth it to push them back and make them miss the movie? Or do you work on just doing better a little bit each time? I don't have any secret weapon here. There isn't one. And that's what is so hard is watching someone become diabetic because you couldn't stop them from overeating. Um, Watching someone who's going to lose their teeth by the time they're 35 because their teeth are going to rot out because they won't brush their teeth and all they drink is um, sodas. Um, Watching someone who will not exercise and when they finally really want a job and they can't physically do the job because they get winded and they can't handle it and, and then they get more depressed and then they go eat more. There are just so many ways that neurodiverse brains are like a domino effect, a snowball effect where one problem runs into another, runs into another until it grows and grows and becomes um, paralyzing. And I know that's a little bit extreme. And and the truth is the more high functioning someone is, and by high functioning, I don't mean less autistic as much as I mean this life skills in general. And I, I know they're related, but if they have good life skills, regardless of why, and if they're willing to jump through hoops, even if they don't like it. And if they're willing to allow you to have a relationship of influence where they'll do it for you, even if they don't value it because they trust you, that's the ideal. And then eventually, a lot of times the light goes on and they'll see their friend going to the dentist and and have to get dentures, you know, at a young age. Um, and they'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm glad I brushed my teeth. And then it reinforces it after the fact. But it's really hard to convince someone in the moment that it's worth it. 
there's always this feeling of, I'd rather take a small Snickers bar, candy bar now, than wait an hour and get a bigger one, even though it's my favorite candy bar in the world. Um, they, they just have a harder time doing that. But if they can have a little bit of self-control, a little bit of maturity, then they go a lot further. You know, a high-functioning autist, people with ADHD, they're not likely to, they're not as likely to um, do something that would get them into physical harm as much as someone who just really can't understand the dangers of walking onto a highway. Um, and so this really is a developmental disability and not a mental health one. So just like a three-year-old uh, might drink poison, maybe someone who's six and neurodiverse would do the same, although most typical six-year-olds would, would know better than to drink something like that. So, like I said, I don't have any magic bullets. I do have a lot of empathy and compassion for those who are in the trenches trying to do their best to maximize success for the ones they love, even if they're not going to be completely successful. Um, sometimes it's just better to give yourself a break, a pat on the back and say, I, I did everything I could without destroying myself or destroying my relationship with them. And I think that is the line for sure, that if you're going to make great sacrifices to help someone be healthier and do better, don't cross the line of, well, I had to be the bad guy and I'm okay with them hating me as long as they live longer. Because the truth is, someone who has a lot of hate ends up losing their supports, and that means they won't live longer. Because there's so many ways that you'll miss out on in your long-term ability to support and influence them. So keeping a bridge, keeping a relationship of influence is critical. That doesn't mean you're the, the marshmallow buddy-buddy, give them what they want whenever they want it. Um, your job is to give them what they need, not what they want. And that's why we keep a relationship of influences so that they're willing to let us influence, invite, and entice them to do better when possible. I'm sorry it's not better news. I'm sorry there's not a magic bullet. My heart goes out to all of you, especially those to those who are neurodiverse and who have struggled with health issues, diabetes, um, dental issues, pain in their bodies, uh, maybe they've lost friends or jobs because of their health or their hygiene, and that is way harder than dealing with someone who has those issues or trying to help and love and support someone with those issues. So good luck to all of you and keep up the good fight, and we will talk to you another day. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, Come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J A S O N D E B B I E.com.